This is Pivotal Tracks, a show about musicians and the song that kickstarted their love of music. My name is Patrick Tate Fleming. I am Gloom Balloon, and I'm also in some other bands uh, like the Poison Control Center and Pure Gut. I'm here to talk about the song that got me into music, and that song is Twist and Shout by the Beatles. So the first time I ever consciously of heard the Beatles, I was in Worthington, Minnesota, at a, a movie theater watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I believe I was seven years old at the time, and of Ferris Bueller gets on 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 a float. If you haven't seen the movie, he he skips school. He's a senior, and he skips school, which is already makes me want to you know be Ferris. And I, even though I'm only seven years old and I've never really been to school before, conscious or like, you know, besides first grade and kindergarten, which are pretty easy. Uh, but so he skips school. Uh, he has the most uh, incredible day and he tops it. The day hits the peak of while lip syncing uh, the Beatles version of Twist and Shout on a parade float. And when I saw that, it like a zing went down my spine of, and I was like, man, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. Uh, which pretty much just means I wanted to be a karaoke singer the rest of my life. But uh, but no, there was something about of uh, the energy of that song and looking at Ferris connecting with all these people of through music. And it made me of fall in love with the Beatles. And so even as a seven-year-old, I fell viciously down the rabbit hole of wanting to know more about the Beatles. And um, and that song in particular, I, I feel like, has a, a, an energy that no other Beatles song ever had after. It's on their first record. It's the last song on their first record. And it was the last song they recorded the day they recorded that album. That whole album's like recorded in a day. And of... George Martin, the producer, had saved it for last because he knew that it was going to be like ragged on John Lennon's voice and because his voice was pretty much shot. And he was like, I just read about this. So I know this for, well, a George Martin fact that he was like popping cough, cough drops and drinking a lot of milk of to like kind of try to save his voice, even though milk sounds like the worst thing for your voice to me. Uh, but um so when it came time to do Twist and Shout, they ripped right through it, and uh, he gave that performance on the first take, and the performance is, like, ragged and rough and vicious and sexy and exciting, and 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 they thought they should do it again. And then he did it again, and they're like, nope, you, you're done. That was it. We got the take in the first one. So it was the first ever, t- the first take uh, of the last song they recorded on the first first ever recording session uh, for their first album. And, and John Lennon for the longest time didn't like the, didn't like his vocals on it, apparently. But I think they're like of, 
there's only other a few other songs in like the Beatles canon where that like pure rock and roll Lennon scream and just just pure of exhilaration uh, come out of his voice and and I would say they're like revolution and of maybe like happiness is a warm gun at the end of it it comes out of him and you know uh, maybe a couple other but like those you know like it's like the most raw John Lennon performance ever as a Beatle uh, I think he would like kind of come back to that like screaming wailing all emotional stuff a lot more in his solo career with like I don't know Instant Karma and all of Plastic Ono Band uh, but anyway uh, so that that song just like ripped my soul apart and it was so exciting and fun and it's and of course they didn't write it so they probably didn't have like the pressure of being like well maybe we should try it tomorrow and try to get a better vocal take or something but it was just somebody else's song so they were just like well this is probably just like you know trying to fill this LP of sides but but it's vicious and um, the rest of the Beatles sing great on it and there's like you know it has like a a climax twice, uh, which I, I think the Beatles would come back to, like, a, you know, on a day in a life by having, like, the big, like, uh, orchestral orgasm of sound in a day in a life. It's kind of very similar setup, like uh, Twist and Chat was, uh, by having that, like, the ah, ah, you know, like, going big and then just, like, you know, and then coming down and be like, baby now. Uh, but anyway, as a seven-year-old, it blew my mind. And uh, like I said, it like put me into like the the rabbit hole of of Beatle fandom, which I'm still in today. Uh, the Beatles are the probably the only band in existence. I, I still I still think I, I listen to the Beatles every single day because even if I'm like not consciously playing the Beatles, I get into a car and they're on the radio and or like I'm listening to something else on Spotify or something and and, and it's influenced by the Beatles so then a Beatles song just comes on or something so even if it's by accident I still think I hear a Beatles song every day or I quote a Beatles lyric or I see Beatles things in my home or whatever uh, so um, but the cool thing about being that seven year old who was so into it of later that year of I had my first ever performance of was that song and it was on top of a picnic table at a 4th of July picnic and there's a photograph of it that I put on my last album cover. Oh, right. So, uh, so it's still like, that shows you how impactful the song was to me. Uh, cause that was like, it was the first song I knew all the words to, um, you know, it's just a, the perfect rock and roll song. And then of course, if you fall in love with the Beatles as a, as a young kid, you, you know, I think all the early Beatles stuff kind of like goes more towards kiddom, if that's a word, like, cause it's all like very catchy and rhymy and easy to remember. And, you know, about dancing or being in love or, or whatever. But then as you get older, you start to, you know, want to know more about like the, the drug years or whatever, uh, or the more psychedelic stuff or, or when they're fighting and stuff. And so probably the next, uh, vital moment of music fandom in my life was when I was 11 years old and I was driving back. I wasn't driving. I was riding back of in whatever my family vehicle with all my brothers and sisters of my parents and strawberry fields forever came on the radio and my dad said oh listen 
listen at the end, they're going to say, I buried Paul. And so my dad turns it up really, really loud at the end. And, you know, it's all the chaos at the end of that song. And um, it gets really quiet. And then it comes back up and you kind of hear stuff. But like, I didn't hear it. I didn't hear that I buried Paul. So I knew my parents had that record or whatever. They had like the Beatles 67 through 70, like the blue thing that had all the the 67 through 70 singles or whatever. And so I went home and I put that thing on my Fisher Price record player and I played it so many times and turned it up until I heard John Lennon go, I buried Paul, which apparently he's actually saying cranberry sauce. But because uh, my dad had like filled me in, he's like, he's like, oh, yeah, that, you know, like they had all these like Paul McCartney had died or like and they had all these like death clues and all this stuff. And so like for an 11 year old, just like a, a conspiracy theory about the most famous person, the most famous musician ever, mm-hmm. pretty much, even though maybe not at that time in 1991 when I was 11 of had died actually in 1966 and some other guy had like taken over. I just thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. And also scary that the Beatles were like sending messages and songs and stuff like that. So that put me down the Beatle rabbit hole again when I was 11. Let me take you down cause I'm going to strawberry fields. And so I think it was like also like maybe the turning point in my life when when my first love of baseball became my second love to the Beatles. And so uh, cause I can remember being on a vacation and, you know, whatever you have, like twenty dollars that your grandma gave you to spend on a vacation. And I remember spending mine on like a Beatles postcard or something like a giant Abbey Road postcard or something and my dad was wondering why I wasn't like buying a baseball or something uh so anyway um but Strawberry Fields Forever is still my all-time favorite song it's like uh you know the thing that like scared the crap out of me when I was 11 years old is still like my favorite song ever and probably is the song that uh to this day as like a producer or something I strive to like push other people to like create something that that is that unique or something because I don't the thing about strawberry fields forever is that I don't think there's ever been like of a recording that's like that cool and it's like it's different recordings like the first half is like one take and the second half is another take and they splice the tape together and like if you hear the demo of the song it's just like John Lennon singing like really quietly and 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 it's just like a beautiful love song, but then the way they record it and they change the speeds of the the one take to match up with the second take that they splice together. So it's like John Lennon sped up and like the other one's John Lennon slowed down. So his voice sounds all weird and like he sounds like an alien half the time in the song. And the strings are all weird and the guitar part's really cool and the drums are amazing. And there's like Mellotron on it, which is like my favorite instrument. And... uh it's just incredible. It's like such a song to like uh, a recording masterpiece to like strive for. And then on the flip side of it uh, is Penny Lane, which is just like the most beautiful song ever. So uh, I think that was when the Beatles hit their peak because my favorite, my favorite Beatles album is probably Revolver and uh, the Strawberry Fields Penny Lane single, I think is like their ultimate masterpiece of, of like a release and then, then came, you know, Sgt. Pepper or whatever right after that, because those songs were supposed to be on Sgt. Pepper. Anyway, uh, 
but I was so into it as an 11 year old and I'm still desperately into it today, but I wouldn't, I don't think I would have ever even like got that consciously crazy about my dad turning up strawberry fields forever. If I wasn't already obsessed with like the emotion and exhilaration that Ferris Bueller was singing twist and shout. I think music can like cause stir all these different emotions, whether it's like memories or love or like hate or fear or sadness or happiness. And, and as an 11 year old boy, whatever, you know, going through puberty in small town, Iowa, I had never been so scared in my entire life. And it was a song that did it, you know, which to me, looking back on it seems kind of silly, but I, f- I feel like that was when I realized that music could like really affect somebody, you know, in a perverse way. And of and it was just the, the sound of it. It sounded like the end of that song sounds like the end of the world or something. Or it sounds like, you know, of the opening of the gates of hell or something. It's incredible. Uh, and, and it still sounds like it. it still excites me every time I hear it. And now that like, you know, I bet I've listened to that song a thousand times in my life at least. And like every single time I turn that end up just to like hear the, the, you know, the freakiness of whether he's saying I buried Paul or not. Um, but, and the song is just like, Incredible, and there's nothing like it. There's never been a song again like Strawberry Fields Forever. And I think that's the, another thing about the Beatles that, you know, like, you know what I think? When somebody says they don't like the Beatles, it pisses me off so bad. And, and I've been in I've been in bands with people who think the Beatles are bad, and I know a lot of people who like make records, like who are like sound engineers or recording engineers or producers or whatever, and they just like scoff at the Beatles and I'm just like it makes me think that they're uh, A they have like no soul and that they have just like no brains whatsoever Uh, because this is a band that affects me so bad and like and it's and it shouldn't be like a hard argument because they're the most popular band of all time right Uh, but there's a reason they are because they're just so innovative and so brilliant and to put out that amount of music in like the course of like seven years is just incredible they put out like 200 60 songs in like seven years 13 albums with a bunch of singles that weren't even on the albums and like every single one was like trying to like up the one before it and to change and i think that and then even when they went back to like being just more of a rock and roll band on say like let it be or abbey road the songs are still there they're still great you know so of they never really failed even though a lot of people think that they did and i think even the beatles probably think that they did uh at the end but they didn't they never failed and um and they're always innovative and i think that like i think that's something to strive for i think like the the performance aspect of ferris bueller on that float is something i've tried to strive for every time i like perform music i want to like make that connection of like where at the end of the song he's just like falls back into the arms of whatever these cheerleaders who are on this float with him because he's like put everything he has into performing that one song on that float or whatever and and he kills it and so like as a performer i've always been like well you have to just put 
it all out there on every song that you ever do because it might be the last song you ever perform. And I feel like as somebody who tries to make records of whether they're Gloom Balloon records or uh, I'm producing for somebody else like Chris for the Concord or Twins or Quick Piss or, you know, Wolf's in the Attic or Menorcan or Dollfish, like any record that I've ever made of other people's or produced of other people's, I've tried to get them to like do something that they haven't done before. Cause I feel like that's unnecessary when you're like making music. And I think that comes straight from the Beatles, like trying to like change a little bit, like never giving somebody the same record you gave them before. And I think that's something that of uh, the Beatles showed me the way on, I guess. tell like they played up to that point they had played like 300 and some shows Mm -hmm. at the cavern alone you know like they were like a band that played six hour shows in germany you know like they probably played twist and shout you know 10 times faster than that on a stage even you know can you imagine i like uh there's this guy named jason anderson who's a performer or singer you know he he still puts out records uh he was a great he's He's always been great live every time I see him. And I had a conversation with him one night. We got, we probably had a little bit too much to drink and he played like a house show in Ames. This has to be like 10 or 15 years ago. And I can remember talking to him and he goes, can you imagine seeing the Beatles live in like 1968, like during the White Album or something? Mm -hmm. Just like how, like, because people don't realize that they stopped being a live band in like 1966 and people were screaming so loud that nobody could hear him anyway. But like, if you listen to that first album, Please Please Me, and you listen to a song like Twist and Shout, they are a ripping band. And that's just them playing live. You know, like there wasn't like hardly any overdubs on that. And if there was any, it's like vocal overdubs or maybe a tambourine overdub. It's like that's them playing. And they're awesome. So anybody who says like they're like, uh, oh, the Beatles are, you know, slop or whatever, they, you know. They're ripping, and if if you saw them at the Vaudeville Muse or Woolies or something, you'd be like, "This is the greatest band I've ever seen in my life," you know. And I I don't think people get that. And of course, like a song like Strawberry Fields Forever is the opposite spectrum because it could never be performed live, you know. Like it's like I said, it's like a, it's a it's using the studio as an instrument. It's splicing two different takes of you know. There's Mellotrons and horns and strings and stuff that the Beatles couldn't play. And you could never, you never, you could never do that song live, you know, like, like, like it is on the record. Yeah. We're like twist and shout. Like they performed it on the Ed Sullivan show. And mind you, they probably recorded it earlier and mimed to it like Ferris did. Uh, but like they could perform that song with that sheer excitement every time they do it, mm-hmm. you know? And like I said, like, when they were playing it on stage, I bet they played it even faster and even, even growlier and with more emotion and stuff. And it kind of proves a point that like the Beatles were great at, of, of interpreting other people's songs. You know, I think that's something that like, uh, well, uh, I mean, if you go to a karaoke bar, that's all that people are doing is interpreting people's songs. And I, and I find karaoke to be very, of, 
entertaining and interesting to see how people do it. And somebody who's like a musician definitely does it a different way than say somebody who's just up there singing a karaoke song. And sometimes I like the way that people who are just doing the karaoke song do it better. But you can tell when like, you know, I'm with my friends or something and I'm, I'm at a karaoke bar and whatever the person who's been on the vaudeville muse stage a hundred times gets up there and do karaoke you're like oh okay for the next five minutes this guy is like he's getting his rocks off for the next you know for his month that he doesn't have a show or whatever so including me that's how i perform karaoke and i think i probably perform karaoke much like ferris did on that flow so and that's why i think it was so important to me to like um to put that photograph on the right because i never i've never put like you know poison control center never had like our photos on a record and and i don't really want to have my photo on a record because i don't want to see my face of on a record of but for some some reason when i was talking with ali arnold the the girl who designed it and illustrated it I, I was very adamant about putting this photo on it. She's like, oh, it's an old photo. All you have is this little photo. It's like, it'll be all grainy. And like, and I was like, no, it'll be cool because it's so special to me because it's like, that's my first performance. Like there, that's it. And that's kind of what the record is all about. You know, it's about like whatever, falling in love and having a child and like, you know, whatever, looking back on your youth and hoping you didn't screw up too much along the way or something. But so there was definitely a homage to Twist and Shout and Ferris Bueller on the last Blue Blue Gnome cover. I just want the, I just want my musicians when they're playing live to be feeling the music as much as as they can. You know, I don't like I don't like seeing people who are. Uh, if you have a great song, uh, you can still perform it. Even if it's like not like a rocker, you can still perform it with like the the craziest energy and emotion. Of I'll use Leonard Cohen as an example. If you're looking for somebody who's playing a quiet, soft song but putting in so much emotion, look up Leonard Cohen live at the Isle of Wight. I think it's from seventy or seventy one, uh, and you can see the whole concert on Quello, or they released it on a DVD, or just look it up on YouTube, and he's singing these like soft quiet acoustic songs but there's like something about the way he is performing them that like makes you be like holy shit you know like it's there's so much energy and emotion put into it and i guess that's just what ferris did with that uh song just because he's having a good time and probably wants to impress his girlfriend or something or he wants he wants cameron to have a good time he wants Mm -hmm. his friend to have a good time and he might be getting caught right like play play music with the reckless abandonment that you might get caught for skipping school on your downtown on a float below your dad's mm-hmm. place of business, right? Uh, and everybody in in the city c- can see you. So play music with that reckless abandonment, and that's what uh, made me want to play music, I guess, because there's nothing else like it. You can find more of Patrick's music at gloomballoon.com, including his most recent album, Drying the Eyes of the Goddess of Gloom Underneath the Stars and the Moon, which featured the picture of a young karaoke singing Patrick that he discussed on this episode. 
Our intro and outro music is from the song Familiars by the band Stubborn Tiny Lights vs. Clustering Darkness Forever, okay? You can find all past episodes of Pivotal Tracks at anchor.fm forward slash pivotal tracks. There you also find links to subscribe on your favorite podcatcher app so you can make sure you'll get the next episode right when it comes out, where I'll be talking to... My name's Jessica Villegas, and I'm in Foxholes and Major Zero and GSV, formerly in Honey Creeper and Tree Branch Twin. Pivotal Tracks is produced by me, Ben Cron. Thank you for listening.